0: continue our series. So today's question is, (laughs) it's actually, it's a question, and that is, can you lose your salvation? The title of the sermon actually, though, comes because (laughs) every time I've ever known somebody who has read the book of Hebrews, they inevitably end up questioning the security of salvation because of some very tricky readings that are found in Hebrews, particularly Hebrews 6, and most importantly, 4, verses 4 through 6 of Hebrews 6. Difficult. Very difficult, because it's a mentality thing. It's one of these, when we look back on it from our current mentality, and we look at what's being said, it's difficult to understand that in the time and the place, he had a very specific reason for saying the things he said, and the way he said them. So, the, the title is actually, So I've Been Reading Hebrews 6, because I have literally had three or four people come up to me and go, okay, so I've been reading Hebrews, and I'm like, okay, I know, go ahead. I've been reading the sixth chapter, and I'm like, uh-huh, go ahead. I'm a little concerned about this losing your salvation thing. I'm like, all right. Let's go over it. So that's what we're going to do today. So we're going to go over this. And the reason why is because there were still pervasive. I'm going to telegraph it. Can't lose your salvation. Yeah. Cannot happen. But there are still denominations and there are ideas and people who will claim you can. And you could kind of understand why they would get that concept. Because you would think that, well, okay, well, you're regenerate. You're a sinner and you regenerate. You should be different. Yeah, you would hope that would be the case. But people start from different places. Some people were raised in church, and so they got a pretty good head start on things. Some people weren't raised in church, but for various reasons, economic or whatever the case is, they never really went very far down, very far towards the negative path. Other people, they start late in life from a position that is just, it's so far down. It's so far down the rabbit hole of sins that they will spend the rest of their life struggling and advancing and achieving. And from the outside, you say, well, they don't look like they've even changed. They barely even changed. They barely have any fruit that I can tell. That's because we're different. Some people are going to struggle their whole Christian walk. And it's going to be difficult to look at them and say, oh, yeah, well, you can tell they're saved or what. Because it's just going to be difficult. It's not that they're not. It's just they, ha- they started from a different place than us. Or they started, there might be people in this room that are struggling with doubts or, or worries or things that the rest of us don't struggle with. There are people that maybe everybody in this room except one is struggling with all these things, and that one person is thinking to themselves, you know, man, I'm in a room with a bunch of losers around here, what's wrong with these people? It, it happens, we're different. We start from different places. That's why you can't compare. You can't compare yourself to somebody else because we, we, our di- walk is different. We're all different. I mean, look at all the shades of complexions of people in the world. God loves diversity. He created us different. Every single one of these people out here, no matter what they are, God created them the way they are for a purpose, for a reason, for his glory. They just need to figure that out and figure out how to work for God's glory. God wants us to be us. He wants us to be who he created us to be. He wants the diversity the thing is, is we have, so therefore, we cannot say this person's saved, that person isn't saved. Just, you just have to take it on faith that they're saved. Or if they say, well, I'm not saved, then they're not. But whatever the case may be. The issue that we're going to have here is that there are people who fall away. There are people who fall away. We've all seen them. There'll be somebody, you started going to church, and they just seem like the greatest Christian. They're working, they're doing their stuff, they're living their life, and then all of a sudden, something happens, and they leave the church. And they don't even necessarily have to go crazy, but sometimes they go in a direction that you're like, holy cow. Other times, it's not. They just, they're just neglecting the church, and there's, and if you were to ask them, do you believe in God? No, I don't believe in that stuff anymore that's difficult. But these are people that have walked different walks. Whether the person really doesn't believe, or they've been hurt, and they're just saying they don't believe, or they're struggling, and they're fighting. Most people believe in God. It's just that they're angry with God. And so, you know, as a personal, for my own personal story, I sat there on the ground, and I screaming at God. I was like, God, just leave me alone. (laughs) Just leave me alone. Just please, just stop. I don't want it. I don't want it. Leave me alone. So we all start from different places. We all have different things involved. So we're going to read Hebrews chapter 6. I'm going to read it in its entirety, and then we're going to go back over it. It's not very long, but it is what it is. And you'll see when we read it why it is. People read it, and they get freaked out. Chapter 6, verse 1. Therefore, leaving the principles of the doctrine of Christ, let us go on unto perfection, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith towards God, of the doctrine of baptisms and of laying on of hands and the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. And this will we do if God permit. For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gifts and were made partakers of the Holy Ghost and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the world to come If they shall fall away to renew them again unto repentance, seeing they crucify to themselves the son of God afresh and put him to an open chain for the earth, which drinketh in the rain that cometh off upon it and brings forth herbs, meat for them by whom it is dressed receives blessing from God. But that which bears thorns and briars is rejected and is nigh unto cursing, whose end is to be burned. But beloved, we are persuaded better things of you, and things that accompany salvation, though thus, though we thus speak. For God is not unrighteous to forget your works and labor of love, which ye have showed towards his name, and that ye have ministered to the saints, and do minister. And we desire that every one of you do show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope unto the end that ye be not slothful, but followers of them who through faith and patience inherit the promises. For when God made promise promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no greater, he swore by himself, saying, Surely surely blessing I will bless thee, and multiplying I will multiply thee. And so, after he had patiently endured, he obtained the promise. For men verily swear by the greater... And an oath for confirmation is to them an end of all strife, wherein God, willing more abundantly to show unto the heirs of the promise, the immutability, which means unchangeableness, of his counsel confirmed it by an oath, that by two immutable things, in which it was impossible for God to lie, we might have a strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold upon the hope set before us, which hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which entereth into that within the veil where the forerunner is for us entered, even Jesus, made a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I think for this day, and thank you for this time, I think for the people and for this message, that you'll be with my words and be with the hearers and their hearts, that you'll lay these words down the way that they need to hear them, and that it will make sense and that everyone will go forward being a little more assured and knowing how to defend what they believe. I ask for all these things in your holy and precious name, Lord Jesus Christ, amen. Okay, so you see the problem there, right? Verse 4, for it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and were made partakers of the Holy Ghost and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the world to come, if they shall fall away to renew them again under repentance. That's a tough reading right there. Now,
1: you'll see, first of all, there is a therefore at verse 1. And I say it a lot
0: less academically, but whenever there's a therefore, that means something before it matters. So in chapter five, the second half of chapter five, from basically verse 11 through 14 of this, the problem is, is, that, is that the writer of Hebrews and I personally there's actually I'm just going to go off track for a second There's an argument amongst scholars about who wrote Hebrews. Because the writing, the actual written words, are written in a very classic Greek that's very refined, like very refined, that is... Only two other books in the Bible have that form of Greek. Luke, the the Gospel of Luke, and the Acts of the Apostles, both written by Luke, the physician. So the problem is the way it's written is written like what Luke would write. But the voice you hear when you read it is very Paul. It's very much Paul. He has every aspect of Paul. He meanders around. He changes subjects often. He makes statements like that. Where the fourth one. He says, for it is impossible. And then he goes on this whole rabbit trail of things that they've done. And then goes, because if you or I were writing, we'd probably say, it is impossible for those who are once enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gifts to have fallen away and then come back to repentance. That's how we would say it. Not Paul. He's going to throw 40, 50 words in there in between. And that's just how Paul was. He, he is a very, I call it meandering, but he just, he goes around. He moves around. He, he's very flowy with his words. And he jumps from subject to subject to subject. Well, one of the things is, so again, there's, a, there's an issue with it. So most people just say the writer of Hebrews. Because I personally believe this was probably one or two sermons by Paul that either Luke, the physician, or Apollos, who doesn't have credit for any writings yet in the Bible, Apollos, who was another very famous a, a, a disciple of, of Paul, who wrote other things, again, who were very, that was very well written, those two wrote it down. So basically, Paul's preaching, and they're sitting over there going, oh yeah, that's good, that's good, and they're writing it down. So that's what I believe we're reading here. There's arguments about it. I honestly don't think it matters because when you read it, it's it's the clearest explanation of Christianity and of God and of Jesus. So it clearly is inspired. But I believe it's Paul's words with Luke's writing is how I believe it, or Paul's. But so that's how. so. But from here on, I'll say the writer. But I believe he was Paul. And Paul was addressing these people, and he's trying to get deep. This church that he's talking to, the people he was specifically talking to probably was an old church. He planted them, he went around, he came back 20 years later or something like this. And they're still squabbling over small, minor, insignificant details. And, he's, and so what he's doing is he's going to get up frustrated because he's wanting to get deep into things. And they're still worried about things that don't that are just elementary. So, like in chapter five, starting in eleven, it says, "Of whom we have many things to say, and hard to be uttered, meaning hard to hard to say them, seeing that you are dull of hearing. For when, for when for when the time ye ought to be teachers, ye have need that one teach you again." which be the first principles of the oracles of God, and become such as have need of milk and not of strong meat. For everyone that uses milk is unskillful in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. But strong meat belongs to them that are of full age, even those who, by reason of use, have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. Therefore, leaving the principles of doctrine of Christ, See, what he's doing is he's saying, the first five chapters, I'm explaining to you elementary things that you should already know, that Christ is God, Christ was crucified, he is our current high priest, we don't have a Levitical order anymore, but he goes through all these things, these are all things that he's saying, you should know this, I shouldn't have to mention this, and this is one of these things too, he's, so six is basically him saying, Here you guys are talking about, can you lose your salvation? You should know this. I want to get past this. But you're still squabbling over something that makes no sense. So that's why Paul is writing this. And again, in the fourth verse, you'll notice that it says impossible. And it says enlightened. Those are key words because the issue is is that, I'm just going to
1: tell you, the word enlightened does not mean saved. You can be
0: enlightened on all kinds of things. It just means to be made aware of. Doesn't mean you're saved. Doesn't mean you believe it. I'm enlightened on Islam. I'm really well I'm really well adept to Islam. I can explain the pillars, the tenets, I can go through the whole thing, I can recite to you basically the entire life of Muhammad. I don't believe it. I'm just enlightened on it. So enlightenment doesn't mean saved. It simply means you're made aware. And specifically, he says the oracles, so meaning not from reading, from hearing. People have been talking about it, people are saying it, so you're enlightened, you've come. You've become aware of what's going on. So, that's the first thing to remember. Enlightened does not mean saved. The other thing is the word impossible. We have to understand that in the time that Paul's writing, in the first century, they didn't think of things the way we do. We think of the word impossible, and we think as and could never happen. They didn't have such concrete thoughts back then. They didn't have, who here knows that they didn't have a zero in math until like. Didn't have, Newton is arguing whether or not because. Newton's like, no, I'm going to create my own form of math and call it calculus. Because, <laughs> and they're, they're like 400 years ago. Why? Because they couldn't conceive in their mind the idea of there being nothing. There's always something, so there can't be nothing. Oh, there's you put five apples in a basket, you take the five apples out, there's still a basket. So they couldn't comprehend zero, nothingness. Just like they couldn't comprehend eternity, forever. In the Bible, in the Old Testament, when they say the word forever, it's the word olam, which means horizon. So when you look out, you see the horizon. That's forever. Why? Because you can walk and walk and walk, and you'll never get there. It's always going to be just over the side. Same ways. Somebody, you see somebody, they're your cousin or something, they move away. They walk, you saw them walk until you couldn't see them no more. Where'd they go? They walked into eternity. Why? Because they walked forever. They walked past the horizon line. It doesn't mean forever. It just means a period of time or a concept that is beyond. It's, it's beyond where we are now. It's, a, it's like saying. A, a time that's beyond our comprehension. Well, so God says. I'm going to give you this. And I want you to do the Seder. Until the time. That at which I tell you. The Seder is the Passover. By the way. Passover. I'm going to do Passover until the time I tell you. Then he says. Oh. By the way. The very next line. You're going to do this forever. And we think, oh, forever. People say, that's Hebrew Roots Movement. People say, oh, you have to do it forever. Meaning today we have to still do the Passover. He said, you're going to do it until it's forever. Well, evidently ever doesn't mean forever. Because like we're thinking, because he said, you're going to do it until the time that I tell you to stop. Meaning the the person was sitting there going, we're going to do this until a time that's so far in the future, we can't even think about it. It's so far in the future, it doesn't matter to us. Because it's going to be beyond our lifetime. And if it's beyond your lifetime, might as well be forever. Because you're going to do it for the rest of your life. Might as well. That's the same reason why when it talks about Christ and it says, His origins are from everlasting. It doesn't say His origins are from the beginning. His beginning has a time. It has a start. Christ's origins are from everlasting. Why? It's forever. We can't see it. We don't know. There were mysteries of God that we don't know. God chose not to reveal to us. In these things, we say, oh, that's in eternity. We'll know about it in eternity. Who knows? We might get to heaven and we might not know any of this. We might get to heaven and then none of it matters. It doesn't even matter anymore. You're thinking now going, when I get to heaven, the first thing I'm going to say is, Jesus, what does this mean? You get to heaven and you don't even care. You're like children. You're just playing and running around in the field. Who knows what you're doing? So we don't know, but, but, but to now we use terminology and we're looking back from our perspective saying, well, he said impossible. Okay, the word impossible, a dinaton in Greek. The reason I'm saying that is because a dinaton, if you ever listen to Andy Stanley, he loves to mention the fact that dinaton is the word for dynamite or power, power, strength. Well, if you know Latin or Greek, Ah, a means no or lack of. So it's lack of power or lack of strength, lack of ability. So, in the Bible, a dinaton is used a lot. Let's jump really fast to Acts 14. Okay, Acts 14 and verse 8 says, And there sat a certain man at Lystra, impotent in his feet, being crippled from his mother's womb, who never had walked. Both impotent and crippled
1: are a dinaton. Impossible, crippled,
0: impotent. All the same word. The concept is in Greek, they have a word. that is very, they'll do this all the time. It's kind of in between meanings for us, for English. We think, does it mean yes or no? Well, it kind of means both. It kind of means maybe. So they have a word that can mean multiple things. We do it the same way. We, when you speak Spanish. Who here speaks Spanish? Do You know what tiempo means? Tiempo means time.
1: But it also means temperature. It's
0: all about this, the, word, the sentences around it. It's all about the context. Words can mean different things. We have the word may. You say, may I go there? But then we also say, that may happen. You're, you're using the word different ways in different sentences. One's a permission. One's saying, I might. Because thing is, you're saying, I may go there. You could also say, I might go there. Might, may, but then at the same time, you're saying, may I go there? That's the same thing as asking, can I go there? Two different ways to use the same word. Well, when translating it, the King James translator said, we need to make it a little more clear. The purposes. So they use the best words in English available at the time. The best words used in English at the time, impotent, crippled, impossible. Not impossible as we think today, as in can't ever happen. Impossible as in very difficult. Very, without power. Meaning his feet, he was was crippled in his feet. Yeah, he had no power, no muscles in his feet. So he's impotent. So he's crippled. Impossible. Same thing. We're, We're using a 21st century mindset to look at the Bible and saying, okay, yeah, but what did Paul mean when he said it then? What he means is it's very, very difficult. We can do, I could do this all day. I could send you, they used, Dinaton is used, you can use over and over again. Impossible. Not that it can't ever happen, but that it's very difficult. And you can't, maybe you can't see a way that it would happen. You might, yeah, you say, well, I don't see a way that that could possibly happen. Not that it can't, it's just that it's very, it would be difficult if it did. You say, well, that's impossible. So, you see the words, it's all about understanding the words. So he's saying it's impossible, it's very difficult, once somebody is enlightened. Enlightened doesn't mean saved. It just means to know about. Same thing, partaker. What does partaker mean?
1: Just partaker. Other words translated as from partaker. Partners, fellows, associates,
0: companions, a sharer. When it says a sharer of the crop, same word, same meaning. Someone who shares in something. So now, let's read this. Let's read it again. Starting in four. For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted taste it, of the heavenly gift, and were made partakers of the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the world to come, if they shall fall away to renew them again under repentance, seeing they crucify to themselves the Lord, the Son of God, afresh, and put him to open shame. They partake of; They're involved. We've all seen people Come into the church, and they, they're working alongside you. They're doing things. Heck, they don't even have to be beside. I'll just use this. Who here? Everybody knows who Howard Stern is, correct? Howard Stern, the, the, the radio guy. I'm not God. I'm not saying he's not saved. I'm just saying, if you put a gun to my head and said, tell me if he's saved or not. I would say, in my opinion, probably not. I've sat there and watched him on stage giving, working at a charity of people who have cancer, children of cancer. He's working alongside. He's a partaker in the goodness of what these priests are doing. He didn't believe in any of that, but he's a partaker in He's getting, God, he's still, when he dies, he might still go to hell, but God, that's not saying God doesn't say, well, thanks for doing what you did. God's going to use everybody. If you, you can do it for the wrong reason, he might be doing it for a tax write-off. Who knows? He might not have a good purpose. Maybe he does have a good intention. Maybe he's inside. I got to do good. I've been blessed with good stuff. I got to do good stuff. That's not what gets you saved. But that's not saying you can't be a partaker in the goodness of it. Therefore, Howard Stern, he's a partaker in that situation. So, and and I'm going to use a really, uh, the best example I can give is John Wesley who created the Methodists that we have today. He was a, he was an Anglican priest. He started preaching when he was in his teens. He came to America on a mission when he was 34 years of age to, to, to try and convert the Native Americans to be Christians. And he failed miserably at it. But he did this. He acknowledges He was not saved until he was almost 35 years old. He was an ordained minister and a missionary to the Native Americans, and he wasn't even saved because he doubted. He never could make it real to him. He could never just believe. He believed it had to be a work. He he knew how bad he was, and he said, man, it's got to be something I can do to make God happy with me. And he couldn't just believe that there was just God God loves you anyways, and may, he did all the work for you. So he went over, failed at his mission. He's coming back across on the, on the ship. All of a sudden, they hit a storm that is so bad, literally the sailors who were these grizzled sailors were falling down crying because they thought they were dead. They thought everybody was dead. It was going to tear the ship apart. They were dead. He goes into the bottom of the ship, and there are these, they're called Meruvians. Meruvians, they used to be called the brethren. These people down there, and the pastor's just preaching. And the people are just sitting there listening. And he goes, why are you guys so unafraid? Why are you, we're going to die. Aren't you guys like, shouldn't you just do prayers or something? And he told him, he said, the moment I die, I'm with God, so I have no worries. I mean, that's just, it's it just better for me. Why would I worry about that? And he's like, how can you be so assured of that? And he says, do you, he looks at me he goes, "Do you know Jesus Christ?"
1: And he goes, and his response was cuz he wanted to
0: hedge his bet. He said, "I know Jesus Christ is the savior of the world." And he goes, "No, do you know Jesus Christ?"
1: And he stuttered, he, "I I I do."
0: And he said, "Well, I'm not so sure. If you really knew, then you would know that what he did is the finished work on the cross. And there's nothing you could have done to get saved. There's nothing you can do to get unsaved. And therefore, you can have assurance in knowing that that, that if you died now, you can go to heaven. If you believe. If you
1: believe. That's it. If you believe.
0: He went back to his room. He later wrote in his diary, I went to America to convert the Indians, but oh, who shall convert me? What is he that shall deliver me from this evil heart of unbelief? That's a 14-year missionary preacher, priest saying that. Yes, he doubted, he didn't believe, he didn't have assurance. We all get saved differently. See, John Wesley went on and later on, after a meeting with George Whitfield, got saved. George Whitfield, he, Whitfield, why are you so happy? And Whitfield said, Because I'm saved, man. And he realized for the first time, there's nothing you can do to get yourself saved. There's nothing you can do to get yourself unsaved. It's you, God says, the Father has given me these people, and there's no one who can pluck them out of my hand. Nobody, not even you. And the point is, once you've tasted, once you've been a part of this, you don't want to be taken out of the hands. So you wouldn't take yourself out of Christ's hands. See, the concept that you have in several of these churches is they'll say, well, yeah, but if you want to give up your salvation, you can give up your salvation. If you want to give up your salvation, you were never saved to begin with. You were like John Wesley, who couldn't quite believe but he couldn't bring himself to admit that he didn't believe. And so he was just playing along. He was just playing the game, playing along, doing what sounded right. The thing is, if we read this, the key to the first half of this is the second half of the chapter. That's why you need to read things in context because the second half of the chapter is explaining it. Plus the fact that we've seen before, sort of the writer of Hebrews when he's doing this, he's chastising these people saying, why are you even worried about this? Why is this even a concept? This should not be a concept. People get saved differently. Some people walk into a church having never been in church in their entire life. They hear a message and bam, They just believe it. Next thing you know, they're changing their life. Their things are going. Other people, myself included, you hear it over and over and over again and you struggle with it. You fight with it. You say, the problem is, is, why would God love me? There's nothing to love. Why would he care? There's got to be something I can do to make myself better to do this. And God's going, no, it was done. It's taken care of. It was all accomplished. There's nothing you can do about it. And once you've truly tasted and believed, you wouldn't give it up. So if you have come along with the church, come along with Christians, and partaken of some of the glories of God, but then you fall away The problem is, it's very difficult to get you back. And I can acknowledge that because I fell away. And it was painful to come back. I did not want to come back. Like I said, I sat there crying in tears, telling God, leave me alone. Just leave me alone. I don't want it. Just leave me alone. And it was painful to come back. To, to tuck my tail between my legs and come back into a church building and it was painful for me because I'm one of these people that I pretended. I played along. I knew all the words. I said all the right things. Everybody would have thought you were saved, but I wasn't. I wasn't. You were saved in an instant and regenerated over time if you believe. If you believe in God, you believe in Christ, you believe in the finished work on the cross, this death, burial, and resurrection, you are saved in an instant, but it will take time for the rejuvenation for you to change. And some people don't have that much time left. Some people, from where they're starting to where their ending point is, they're not going to have enough time to change all the stuff. That's why it's not on us to make those kinds of decisions. Oh, they don't look Christian enough, or they're not acting Christian enough. Not for you to say. We start at different points, we live at different points. We die at different points. God is the one who judges. God's the only one that matters. We are here to try and enlighten the world. But we can take salvation as being assured. It's, there's no, nothing to it. I, you know what? I wish at this point, six, seven years ago, I didn't want anything to do with God. At this point, I wish they were taking us out and putting us on crosses. I wish somebody would come in here and persecute us the way we act like we're persecuted in America. We're not persecuted in America like they claim we are. Over in, in, in Syria, they strung somebody up by, by their arms over top of their head from a bulldozer. and and let them die slowly over there in the sun from exposure. We're not having to face those things. Like I said, It would be easier to die for God than it is to live for God. Many people say, oh, I wish I could die for God. Yeah, because it's so much harder to live for God than to die for God. But that's because we've tasted and we've seen. And you know what? Get closer to God. To get a chance to get closer to God, I'd die for that. The thing is, is we have to live for God. We have to live for God. And you have to endure this life. If somebody is not willing to endure, that means they probably never Made it real. They never really believed. Now we have to make a discernment. Some people are hurt. Some people come in the church and the church treats them poorly. The church says, people in the church say things. They don't want to include them for various reasons. There's different things that will happen that they are hurt. They're not in the church because they have a hurt. That doesn't mean they don't believe. Again, this is where we're not God. We can't just say just because someone left that they're not saved. That's why here it's difficult for them to come back. Can't say they're not saved, but it's difficult. It's very difficult. If you were in it and you left, it's difficult to get back. So, again, we're going to read this. And we're going to pay attention to the fact that, yes, enduring is important. But that's because some people are not saved right away takes time so we're going to start in four again and we're going to read through 12 and it says for it is impossible for those who were once enlightened not saved enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and were partakers of the holy ghost and have tasted the good word of god and the powers of the world to come if they shall fall away to renew them again unto repentance seeing they crucify to themselves the Son of God afresh and put him to an open shame. For the earth which drinks in the water that comes upon it and brings forth herbs, meat for them, by whom it is dressed, receives the blessing from God. This is, is of course, talking about people. People who do the right thing, they get blessings. Whether they're saved or not, they'll get blessings. Eight, but... That which beareth thorns and briars is rejected and is nigh, which means close, into cursing, whose end is to be burned. The thing is, is if you're doing it for the wrong reason, it'll come out eventually. Everything done in the dark comes out in the light eventually. Nine, but beloved, we are persuaded better things of you and things that accompany salvation, though we thus speak. He's saying, though I'm sitting here telling you this and I'm saying you guys should know this, I do believe you're saved. I'm just wanting to remind you that this isn't something you need to worry about. I do believe you're saved. It's just something you don't have to remind about. 10. For God is not unrighteous to forget your work and labor of love, which ye have showed toward his name, and that ye have ministered to the saints and do minister. And we desire that every one of you do show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope unto the end. Meaning, he's saying, "I just want you all." He's telling, "Just be secure in it. Just be secure." In it. It's going to be diligence. You're going to. Have, it's going to take time. It's going to be an effort. It's going to hurt. It's going to be painful. It's going to feel like a long trip. But but be, be have hope in the endurance. Thirteen says, and again, this is saying God is not. God doesn't lie. For when God made the promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no greater, he swear. By himself. See, we all swear by something greater than ourselves. We say, by God, I'm telling you that I will do this. I swear I'm going to do this. God can't swear by anything greater than himself because he is the greatest. And therefore he swore by himself, which is great because when, I love that in John, when Jesus says, they say, well, who's going to testify of you that what you're saying is true? And Jesus goes, there's none better than me. So I'm going to testify to myself and I'm still going to be right. I love that. I absolutely love that. Jesus is just like, I'm testifying <laughs> to myself, and I'm still right. I don't need anybody to testify for me. I can do it because he's God. And God wanted to make sure that Abraham knew by two things that are unchanging. One, God cannot lie. And two, there's nothing greater than God. So God said, I swear by myself that I will, I will make you, Abraham, prosperous. So we continue on, and it says, in 15, it says 14, it says, Saying, Surely blessing, I will bless thee, and multiplying, I will multiply thee. And so after he had patiently endured, he had tamed the promise. The concept of this, though, is that Abraham did not have a great nation in his time. It took hundreds of years after his death before they had a great nation. So when it says Abraham got this, Abraham didn't get to actually physically see it. But he received the promise, though he was in heaven he received the promise. So sometimes you're going to do something and you're going to endure for a lifetime and you're going to pass on and it's not going to be until your children that God is faithful and fulfills his promise and does what he does for you. So just because you don't experience it doesn't mean your children won't experience it for you. So it is important that you endure, that you continue, even at the end of your life, you don't get bitter and be angry and be frustrated, be happy, you have assurance of salvation, Put a good, be a good model for your children and your grandchildren. But they don't say, oh, grandma got bitter and angry when she was older. No, grandma was loving and had assurance of Christ when she got older. That's what you want. You want to be a good positive. That way, the promises that God gives, they may not come to you in your lifetime, but generations down the line, they will know to expect that God is a good God, a giver of good gifts and he does not lie. We're 16. It says, For men verily swear by the greater, and an oath of, for confirmation is to them an end of all strife. Meaning when somebody greater than you says, yeah, I heard it, you stop arguing. Wherein God, willing more abundantly to show unto the heirs of the promise the immutability, which means unchangeability, of his counsel confirmed it by an oath that by two immutable things in which it was impossible for God to lie, we might have a strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold upon the hope set before us, which hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which enters into into that within the veil." Meaning we can be assured. Our souls can anchor our souls to the promise that God said, once you're saved, you're saved forever. Nothing is going to change. Nothing's going to stop. Nothing's going to pluck you out of the hands of God. You can rest in assurance that God is unchanging and that salvation is steadfast and forever. And so live life, do the best you can, and don't worry about it. Because as long as you believe, you're saved. As long as you believe there's an eternity, you just have to believe. And please, don't use anything I said here to club somebody over the head with and say, "Well, I don't think you're saved because of the way you're living," because that's not for us. That's for God alone. All it is for us to be unchanging and unwavering in our respect, admiration, and endurance for the purpose of God and for the purpose of the cross. If we continue steadfast, great things will be accomplished by our lives. But we need to endure. We need to stay positive. We need to keep it till the end. As far as a day for prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for just that you are unchangeable and that you are good and that you will be there for us until the end. I just, it is so amazing that it's nothing we can do to get saved because we couldn't do it. There's nothing we can do to be unsaved because if it was, we'd do it. God, just be with these people, watch them, watch them as they go out, keep them safe. Just be on their hearts If there's anyone out there that they would meet, may this have sunk in that they can use something to assure someone else of their salvation. We all should be completely at peace with the fact that we are saved because you completed it. It's done. May that work deeply within us. May that work on our souls. May that keep us tender towards the people around us. And may we be a brilliant light for you in this dark world. We ask for all these things in your holy and precious name, Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Now I'm going to read, we're not going to do closing psalms, but I'm going to read my favorite hymn. Well, second favorite hymn. To you, just because this is the purpose, this is the third verse of it, is essentially what this is saying. Here. It's called, Come ye sinners, poor and needy. It says, Come ye sinners, poor and needy, weak and wounded, sick and sore. Jesus ready stands to save you, full of pity, love, and power. Come ye thirsty, come and welcome. God's free bounty glorify. True belief and true repentance, every grace which brings you by. Come ye weary and heavy laden, lost and ruined by the fall. If you wait until you're better, you will never come at all. But I will rise and go with Jesus. For he will embrace me in his arms. And in the arms of my dear Savior, there are 10,000 charms. If there's somebody who is waiting until they're good enough, they'll never. They'll never come. We need to inspire people that, you know what? God made you how you are for a reason. Be you, but be the best version of you that you can be. Glorify God in everything you do the way God created you to do it. You're unique. Don't act like, don't dress like, don't be, don't make yourself like the people around you. You. Don't feel the need to fit in. Be you. That's who God created you to be. But be the best version of you you can. And that's what I want to leave you with. Be the best version version of you, you can't